Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Juice in the Big Screen, uh, your preview, review, and discussion podcast. I am your host, Joshua Tracy. And I am Corwin Hill. And, uh, and yeah, we're talking about the 1975 film, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and the 2006 film, Letters from Iwo Jima. Um, Corwin, do you have any preference on where we start today? Uh, absolutely not. All right, then let's start with letters from Iwo Jima. Um, okay. All right, so uh, I just said the title like three times, but Letters from Iwo Jima came out in 2006. Um, it was directed by Clint Eastwood. Uh, it was written by uh, the screenplay by Iris Yamashita. The story was by, uh, actually probably pronounced Iris, Iris Yamashita and Paul Haggis, uh, based on a book by... Uh, Tadamichi Kuribayashi and Tsuyoko Yoshido. I'm so sorry. Probably butchered all of those names. Um, it had an estimated budget of $19 million and a cumulative worldwide gross of $68.5 million. So that is a success. Um, it had... What do we do next? Taglines. Its tagline was... Um, the Battle of Iwo Jima seen through the eyes of the Japanese soldiers, and that just seems like a description. Um, that absolutely is. Uh, do we have a, any other better taglines? Um, Not that I know of. No. They're, they're all, there's three others, but it's all like, from Clint Eastwood, director of Flags of Our Fathers. From the director of Flags of Our Fathers. <laughs> like, they're, they're not, you know, descriptive in any mean. Uh, sure. Anyway. It uh it won one Oscar on the back of four nominations. It won for Best Achievement in Sound Editing for Alan Robert Murray and Bub Asman. It was nominated for Best Picture of the Year. Wait, 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 wait. What was that guy's last name? Asman. Asman? A-A-S-M-A-N. A-S-M-A-N. And his first name is Bub. Oh, man. He's the Asman. Bub. Bub Asman. Has no picture on IMDb, but has won two Oscars. He's just, it should just be a picture of Kramer or that license plate. Wait, you know what's funny is that one of the taglines for Letters from Iwo Jima is from the director of Flags of Our Fathers, but they came out the same year. They were actually shot synonymously. Were they really? Yeah, they are. The two films are. Um, well, that, makes uh, that makes total pieces. sense. Yeah. Yeah. I did not know that until I looked it up after watching this film. Interesting. But they were both companion pieces. They came out like officially like two or three weeks apart. Uh, in reality, one came out in like November. The other came out in January. Um, and it was just meant to show both sides of the battle. Obviously, yeah. Iwo Jima showing, you know, the... Um, the side of you know what it was like to hold the island and and from the japanese and the other from you know flags of our fathers was um the flag raising on mount suribachi that may yeah that makes sense and i feel like i knew that at some point but you know it doesn't count if you don't actually remember anything uh eh. anyway uh it was so it was nominated for best motion picture of the year for clint eastwood steven spielberg and robert lawrence it was um 
nominated for Best Achievement in Directing for Clint Eastwood, and it was also nominated for Best Writing Original Screenplay for Iris Yamashita and Paul Haggis. Um, it is about, as Corwin just fucking said, uh, <laughs> uh, the story of the Battle of Iwo Jima between the United States and Imperial Japan during World War II, as told from the perspective of the Japanese who fought it. Corwin, this was your pick, so tell me your thoughts on Letters from Iwo Jima. Oh, I I adore this film. Um, I think this is one of the best war films to come out, you know, this millennia, um, where it is a a truly heartfelt, you know, introspective piece on the horrors and atrocities of war, um, you know, and highlights the conflicting feelings and conflicting ideologies of, you know, the Americans and the Japanese, both sides of this battle. And, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood and, you know, the way he directs films can often leave a lot to be desired. But at the same time, there is um, a significant amount of heartfelt, and I know I've, I've said that already, but there's a lot of care, and um, God, words are just not coming today. But I love this so much. Um, I think it, it really is something that should be talked about more when it comes to, you know, war films are so wildly popular and so wildly discussed because they're exciting, they're fun, it's what people enjoy watching, you know, whether it be film critics or like 13-year-old kids who just want to see the action, and I think this one is uh, just wildly underrated and under-discussed and, uh, you know, one of the greats right that we on. can definitely get into. Yeah. Um, I, I love this movie. It's such a good movie. I have a hard, I, I, I'm worried about our conversation today because I think I'm going to have a hard time talking about it because it is very much so a movie where it's like, here's the war mm-hmm. and you're just going to do this war stuff for the next two and a half hours. And then we're going to sprinkle in some really cool moments. Um, I think it does a really, really good job of showing the sympathetic nature of these Japanese soldiers because it, it shows you it's not just, you know, like the dudes who allied with the Nazis and that makes them the bad guys by default. It's a lot of young dudes who it's like they got told they're in the military and well, that's all there was to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that sympathetic nature of, you know, even who the enemy is being, um, who the enemy ranks are being populated by is a really important aspect to military conflicts. And that's something that's been talked a lot about more in a public sphere in the past 20 years or so since our involvement, since the U.S. involvement in Iraq and, um, the rest of the Middle East. Um, and I think this film does a really, really good job showing you that and, and showing you that, you know, obviously we always understand that people are people, but it can, it can be tough with older war movies because the enemies are often being portrayed as like, Oh, well that, that guy's speaking in German. We're not going to get subtitles because it doesn't matter. That guy's speaking mm-hmm. in Japanese. We're not going to get subtitles because it doesn't matter. And most of the time it's just them yelling some nonsense and then either killing our guys or getting killed by our guys. Um, right. And so this film does a really, really good job 
of showing the brutality of war and the horrors of war without feeling stale, because that is something that Corn and I have also talked about as we've done several war movies, is that at some point it has to be more than just the horrors of war. Um, this didn't really at any point navigate away from the horrors of war, but it also kept it interesting by being very dynamic and mm-hmm. never leaning too long or hard into either side of look how look how meek this dude is or um look how bloody that was like it, it did a good job switching between the two to make the pacing and the emotion um captivating um, right but at the same time there is not i would say character development in this film which is not a drawback of the film because it didn't need that that's not what the movie's about but that's usually where I have discussion points. So again, I'm not worried about us talking about this film and that we're going to disagree about the quality of it. I am worried mm-hmm. that I'm just not going to have much to say. Like, I don't have any notes. I, I honestly don't either. Um, but again, I don't view that as one of those negative detractors when we discuss it. I think what this film does best is, you know, specifically with, in this case, the Second World War, you know, the Japanese and the people were vilified as just these, you know, uh, cultureless, villainous mongrels that, you know, were truly despicable in their actions and their ways of life. And to an extent, the Japanese and the actions they committed against the Chinese, the way they treated prisoners of war their general, you know, traditionalized military structure and, you know, cultural structure is not exactly something that is the most humane. Um, But what I think this film does best is it not only shows that that is still true to this day where, you know, these kind of atrocities were committed, whether it be the uh, mistreatment of prisoners of war, whether it be the uh, withholding of critical information in order to keep morale high and to keep the mirage of Japanese imperial might intact and the detriments that it causes. But it also shows that while we vilify the Japanese people throughout World War II, as a whole, at the base level, the Japanese soldiers who were not essentially, you know, brainwashed into this traditional imperial ideology that, you know, the leaders of, you know, the Japanese Imperial Navy and the, uh, you know, Imperial Army were trying are still the same 18, 19, 20 year old kids that were fighting on the American side. And by all means, there's no reason we should be viewing them as anything other than essentially conscripts fighting to defend their homeland from invaders. And I just appreciate the care given to show, well, I guess the same thing for the Americans as well, where you show, you know, Americans executing prisoners, you show Americans burning it, you know, the Japanese alive with, you know, the the vast use of uh flamethrowers uh in the battle and also the mercy shown to take care of the wounded, things like that. It shows both sides 
of both sides and it does so in a way and it shows the care that it deserves to paint a realistic and honest picture of something that is in all honesty not shown because it it doesn't fit the narrative that we've been you know portraying for the past 50 60 100 years it's it's a weird part about war movies and how you think about and internalize the combatant sides in war because it's like the Japanese government and the Japanese military in the era of World War II, as you said, did a lot of fucked up shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but a large part about being in, especially any small nation's military, is it's a small nation. You basically have to be. You know, everyone right. in Israel has to join the military at 18. And that is not uncommon of geographically and population-wise smaller countries that still have a military. Japan no longer has a military post-World War II. Um, to a and, degree. Right, right. They, they don't have, have a defense force. It's not a... Not like a formal... It's not the same military. that it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, it's, but also when it comes to these smaller nations with required militaries there is a lot of sense of tradition especially coming out of a nation like japan so it, there is a lot of other things that go like i i might be wrong for thinking this way but i would have some more i i could sympathize with the meek 18 year old japanese kid serving in his military more than i could if they made this movie about the germans i because being a part of imperial japan wasn't much of an option, even though mm-hmm. they did just as much fucked up shit as the Germans did. But being part of the Nazi regime in Germany was. And while the military mm-hmm. aspect of it is still a little bit dicey because when it comes to war and an oppressive regime, you are certainly likely to get people who are in the military who did not want to be. That is obvious. But like the root nature of it, you know, like mm-hmm. Nazism was a political party. Imperial Japan was what it was that was it that was all you that, had that you took the words right out of my mouth what i was trying to say it, like you know you are 100 percent on it like the german nazi party is a political party start to finish the cultural you know system that it created still relegated still was you know originated in the political systems in place the imperialism of japan was the foundation of its cultural identity for decades, not even decades, hundreds of years. It's it's Japanese culture as a whole originated from that style, from that type of hierarchy. Um, and that's something you're born into and your parents were born into. And that's why it's so tradition oriented with, you know, the Nazi party. That's something where while it may be the it may be the culture at large in recent history at the time it is still you know less than a decade of control and power while this is all going on instead of hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition uh just compounding right um, and, and i i think a good scene that emphasizes that is the um the suicide scene with the with the grenades mm-hmm. 
you wouldn't get that scene out of a movie about the Germans. No. And that's because, like, it was more than just military duty to some of these people. It was tradition and in a, in a culture that is so tradition heavy. You know, it wasn't just joining the military because you believed in the Third Reich or you hated the Jews or you needed a job even. Like, it was part and parcel of being part of this country is that you had military service, it was required, and you took pride in it and you did your job dutifully. And if you couldn't do it dutifully, you literally killed yourself. Mm-hmm. Um and it's it's stark because that is not a part of most Western cultures. Um, and it's it's jarring in how visceral it is and very weighty in how emotional it is. Right. And there was the scene where um Ken Watanabe's character, uh General uh, uh Kurubayama. Kubiyaki, uh I honestly forget the, the exact it's not Kobayashi. Uh, but it's it's something similar. Kurabayashi. Um, I just looked it up. Kurabayashi, correct. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Where he's at the dinner in the United States in Washington, meeting with you know admiralty of you know the U.S. Navy or the U.S. Cavalry, excuse me. Um, and they talk about you know the the uh, what what is the term? I need to look it up. But basically, they're talking about well. What if the U.S. and Japan were at war? And, you know, Kurabayashi is like, oh, well, we would be dutiful allies. And they're like, no, no, no. Like, what if they fought against each other? It's like, well, obviously I'm going to show, you know, and, you know, fight for the convictions of, you know, Japan. You know, I'm, I'm going to fight for my country and do that to the best of my ability. And if I'm so that it comes to that. And it's like, oh, well, they ask him, the Americans, would it be your convictions or that of your country? And he responds with, are they not the same? And to Americans where our entire cultural identity is that of personal freedom, personal choice, and you know the ability to do and choose what you wish, that is so wildly, idealistically different from what Japan is uh, based off of what they're founded off of. The entire identity of Japan is country first, family first, honor of honoring your country, honoring your family. And then, you know, only then does personal choice come into play after those are already taken care of. Um, And it's, it's the idealistic difference that we see in the film where these soldiers are at a point where they can no longer fight and win and provide honor to their family. So their only choice is death by their own hand, uh, a seppuku, you know, to some extent. And that is a choice, not even a choice. That is the only option left to them because of just the cultural identity of Japan at that time. Even, you know, to an extent today, where the personal freedoms just are not the focus of Japanese culture. I I so appreciate 
a movie focusing on in on these these types of subjects. I do also have a hard time because I don't want to brush off the fact that again, Japan also did a lot of fucked up shit in World War II, and is also a racist nation. You know, they have problems with uh, the Chinese, and they look down upon the Koreans, and yada yada. Like every every nation has that. You know, like every every single nation looks down upon some other nation or group of people. And that's not to excuse it. That's just to say that it's a reality. And I don't want to keep bringing it up, but I also, because it's just like, I I like the fact that this movie focused in on seemingly the idea of, it focused on two main things. The idea of innocence with the kid and the idea of national identity being tied to the military because that is specifically J- Japanese. Um, mm-hmm. At least in this context where it, there's kind of a dichotomy. Um, because I think bringing up the other things would have been super messy and also really out of the scope of the film. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, I'm i a big fan. I want to ask you about, um, I guess some of the things more around the making of the film. What do you think of it? This is a long movie. This is like a two and a half hour long movie. What do you think of the pacing of it? It didn't feel like it at all. It This honestly was one of the easiest movies we've watched, at least for me in a while. Quite possibly because this is such, you know, my wheelhouse naturally that it, it was like nothing to me. You know, like this is just so innately interesting and uh, easy to focus on for me that it just felt super quick. Um, but again, that's, you know, that's my own personal bias. So it's hard to say, you know, give an unbiased opinion on that. No, I, I think it does. I think it starts off a little slow. Um, but I also don't blame it for that. There is a certain amount of stage setting that needs to be with anything. Because... Mm-hmm. Um, Especially with war films, it's easy for you to cover similar ground. And if this started off in a Saving Private Ryan style kind of way, um, you would go, hey, this is starting off just like Saving Private Ryan. And then that would be how you judge the movie for the rest of the movie. And that's not fair. So, And I I think it does do a good job of showing the fucking mundane boringness of what it's like to occupy what is essentially a an empty island in the middle of the south pacific with nothing close by you know no major cities it's basically an airfield within striking distance of the japanese home islands and that is the only reason it was as important to you know the american navy um as it was it's hard to start this in the midst of the battle and give it the weight it needed to have and give it the context it needed to have. Um, So I completely understand why they started where they did. And I completely understand, you know, what the purpose was for starting it uh, and the staging, you know, at the beginning of the film. Um, And again, to me, it didn't feel all that, slow paced it it felt you know perfectly fine um so it wasn't a worry to me but you know i i am 
very appreciative of um where things you know began and and the way they laid out this story for everyone i'm with you um trying to think if i have any other big comments i'm not sure i'm not sure do you have anything you want to talk about with it um the i just have a one note that is really just a throw-in um the the character that comes in as essentially a replacement um who is kind of they view as the guy coming in to uh spy on them and um they say he's like oh you know he's spying us to make sure that we are um fully committed to the empire fully committed to this that what have you uh what they talk about i, I honestly will struggle to pronounce this so excuse my uh, japanese the kempitai where he trained at uh kohokimo yosijo in japan again i am so sorry if that is a complete butchering of that location uh, but that's basically the gestapo the secret police of imperial japan um which is why they were so concerned about that from the start interesting that's something i had to look up and do a little bit of research into because uh it's definitely not something that's openly uh discussed uh in the film interesting oh yeah i didn't know anything about that yeah little something there um now, all right, shall we do final thoughts uh, and uh, final rating and review? Uh, yeah, sure. All right, uh, this is your movie. You take the lead. Um, again, I just want to reiterate that I view this as, as one of the best war films to come out um, in quite a long time. You know, it, it definitely should be held there amongst, you know, the other great contemporaries. Uh, you know, the Saving Private Ryan's, the other great war films of the modern era, um, showing the emotional impact of a, honestly, a, a lesser discussed people like the Japanese that is viewed in such a, a negative light, especially during this era. But again, you know, the the realization that these are not a singular focused people where the individual soldiers fighting do not necessarily share the ill will and negative focus of of their leaders and i I just think it's it's a a flawless war film when it comes to discussing the the mental impacts uh and constraints the the constrictors the the cell that is you know fighting on this island and i don't know it, it's hard to really put it into words um i thought about writing this whole like this whole thing out beforehand but i decided i'll wing it and see how it goes and i think we all kind of could see where that would end up but regardless irregardless uh i think this is perfect i'm gonna give it a five this is this is this is one of those movies that i like to classify as a dad movie but one for everybody. Um, like this is, this is a movie that 
you know, every generically old white man will enjoy um, because it is about the war. But it's also a really, really good movie. Um, mm-hmm. It is not necessarily for the squeamish. There's There are guts. Um, but the just to cut in um, the scene where they bring the captured American into the cave and basically just beat him and bayonet him and it like watching that as a kid fucking ripped me open and was definitely the singular scene that was too much for a young child to watch Um, and even today it's like that is just truly not something that I would want to show anyone under the age of 18. Oh, there's a lot of those. <laughs> oh. yeah. But it, again, it, it's a really, it's a really good movie. It, you have to be in a mood for it because it's a, it's a lot of violence, but once you're in the film, it, it's a pretty steady film to actually watch. I don't want to say easy again, because it, it's, it is a very violent movie, but in terms of war movies that are violent, this is an easy watch, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. It's treated very well. Um, it is so well acted. Ken Watson. I would watch Ken Watanabe do anything. I love um, him so much. He's so fucking good. Uh, and this is Clint Eastwood at his best. I mean, this movie was shot in 32 days. Look at it. It's amazing. Like It really is. It, oh, it's so good. I, so what's Sorry, go ahead. Finish up. I was going to give it my star rating. What's up? Uh, No, give it your star, and then I'll I'll mention it at the end. I'm going to go... Fuck. I'm going to... I'm I'm going to... I'm going to go four and a half. I don't know why I'm not doing five. It's a good feeling. I get it. Yeah, but it's... It's it's such a good fucking movie. Uh, So the filming scenes where they show... um, you know, some of the beach shots and the shots of Mount Suribachi themselves were all shot on location in Iwo Jima. Uh, even so, because of the nature of the fact that there's, you know, 20,000 bodies buried, you know, beneath the sands at Iwo Jima, uh, the Japanese government didn't really want to have the entirety of the filming shot there because of you know, just the, the nature of the film itself and, and wanting to respect those that are buried there. So the majority of the film filming on location was done in uh, Raskovic, Iceland because of the, you know, black sand similarities. Oh, really? I, sh- I read that it was shot in Malibu. Oh, I'm sure there were, you know the scenes inland on the island where it's just dirt and hills and all that mm. uh, were definitely, you know, could have been done in Ireland or Malibu, you know, no questions asked, but um, you know, the black sandy beaches, the outcrop rocks, yeah. all that stuff uh, that was done in uh, Raskovic. That makes a lot of sense. Interesting. Where to go, Iceland. Um, yeah, shout out to Iceland. All right. Now let's bring it over to our next film for the day, uh, 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, it was directed by Milos Forman. Um, it was written by, the screenplay was by Lawrence Aubin and Bo Goldman. It was based on the novel by Ken Kesey. And then there was also the play version in between these two, which was written 
by Dale Wasserman. Uh, it stars Jack Nicholson, Louise Fletcher, and Michael Berriman, as well as a performance from a young Danny DeVito. Um, hmm. Love Danny DeVito. It had an estimated budget of $3 million and it had a cumulative worldwide gross of about $110 million. So that is a success. Um, its tagline was, uh, if he's crazy, what does that make you? All right. Well, it's not the worst. No. Um, it won five Oscars on the back of nine nominations. As a, a fun piece of trivia, it's also one of the only three films to have won the big five Oscars of Best oh, Picture, wow. yeah. Actor, Actress, Director, and Writing. Those are the five Oscars that it won. The only other two two films to have done that, Corwin? The big five, I want to say, like, Ben-Hur? No. Okay. Was that one of the ones that got nominated for, like, eleven? I know it was one of those big, yeah, yeah, it, it, it uh, won cumulative ones, won like nine or some shit like that, or ten. Um, oh no, it won shit. eleven. It won eleven. Yeah. Okay. Um. God, won the big five. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um. I don't know. I. I. It's one of those facts. I used to know it by heart and would always like use it on people, but I've just. I'm gonna get it so confused with so many other things. It's atrophied since then. Yeah, pretty much. I don't. I want to say the Godfather is like speak, like jumping out at me, but I, I don't think she would have won Best Actress. Nope. Nope. All right, lay it on me. All right. 1934's It Happened One Night. Yeah. Um. Yep. One for Best Picture. Best Story for Capra. I don't know who wrote that. Um. Clark Gable. Claudia Colbert. Um, 1975's One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, and 1991's Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. This is always a weird one because Anthony Hopkins won for Best Actor in a Leading Role, even though he's like really not in the movie that much, um, and probably should have been a supporting actor, um, in terms of how he's classified. But high billing, an important role, um, in terms of the plot of the film. So mm -hmm. yeah. Makes sense. At least, you know, why they would argue one versus the other. Yeah, I get it. It's like, it's a really important plot-based role, but he's also still not on screen much. Um, anyway, doesn't matter. So that is the, the, the fun fact with that. So, uh, back pivoting back to, to the Oscars. It won for Best Picture for Saul Zeintz and Michael Douglas. That's right. By the way, Another fun fact, Michael Douglas, the actor, was actually first famous as a producer. Um, Michael Douglas apparently tried to get into movies as an actor, and people didn't want him. So he ended up bankrolling a bunch of movies, and then tried to get the movies he was bankrolling, and still no one hired him. <laughs> um, Which like, is ridiculous. Hilarious, but ridiculous. I, I know. Like, in 1975, when this movie came out, Michael Douglas had done... Oh, a couple of movies? Hail Hero in 69, Adam at 6 a.m. in 1970, Summer Tree in 71, Napoleon and Samantha in 72, and that was it. What was his breakout role, Michael Douglas? Um, Probably Romancing the Stone. What about his real breakout role? Because I've never even heard of that. You've never seen Romancing the Stone? No. 
All right, then maybe Fatal Attraction? Okay. I, yeah. All right. That oh, would be the one for me that is like, oh, okay. That makes sense. Also, Fatal Attraction, 1987, 12 years after this movie came out. Jesus Christ. Yeah, no, Michael Douglas was first and foremost, was originally a producer before he became an actor. Um, it's a wild, wild uh, little little fact there, because I think everyone thinks of Michael Douglas as an actor. Um, right, absolutely. Anyway. Uh, also won for Best Actor in a Leading Role for Jack Nicholson, Best Actress in a Leading Role for Louise Fletcher, Best Director for Milos Forman, Best Writing Screenplay adapted from other material for Lawrence Haubin and Bo Goldman. It was nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Brad Dourif, Best Cinematography for Haskell Wexler, which is a made-up name, and Bill Butler. Um, Best Film Editing for Richard Chu, Lindsay... Lindsay spelled L-Y-N-Z-E-E. Fuck whoever named this woman. Klingman. Um, and Sheldon Kahn. And Best Music Original Dramatic Score for Jack Nietzsche. Um... It is about a criminal that pleads insanity and is admitted to a mental institution where he rebels against the oppressive nurse and rallies up the scared patients. Uh, this was my pick, so I will start. Um, this is one of, like, if people are putting together their top ten, not necessarily their specific top ten, but like a list of those considered you know, top 10 greatest films ever made, movies with auras around them, like The Godfather and Citizen Kane. This is always up there on those types of lists, and very deservedly so. This film has so much going on in it, in terms of what is actually happening, what it all means, and the importance of the conversation around those things, that there is always something else to be thinking about while watching this movie and that cannot be overstated for how much of a timeless film that makes this and just how constantly enjoyable it is to watch um, oh absolutely yeah first the cinematography of this film is it still looks gorgeous even today um and there's so much great acting in it you get a really really wonderful performance out of just about everybody in the movie um, plus it's about something that still touches a lot of people today, which is the idea of mental illness and, you know, there's various stigmas and, and, and problems, um, with, with, um, mental health care in, in the U S or really wherever you live. Um, and it just makes us such an evergreen film for a lot of those subjects, even though a lot of these practices are no longer viable, uh, you don't lobotomize people anymore. And and you, I think there still is to some extent electroshock therapy, but I don't think it looks the way it looks in this film anymore. I, I think it's very different if it even still happens. Um, I know my chiropractor does it. Really? Not to your brain, but like ah, the, well, the, yeah. The principle of like electrocuting someone to make them make them feel better. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's. It's just such a, a, it's such a perfect fucking movie. Um, and we're going to get into a lot of the conversations around it, but there really is, there really are so many reasons to watch this movie in the first place and then to come back to it over time. Um, I fucking love it. it. Yeah, it's one that I haven't seen in so many years. And I always remember it being like a, a great film, you know, one that was wildly enjoyable to watch. 
Um, but at the end of the day, I was like, yeah, you know, like I never really felt the need to go back and rewatch it. But watching it again, it's like, wow, like there's there's so much here to love and appreciate and just dive into yet again. Um, a truly great film. We This is a really good combo we had this week. Yeah, seriously. All right, Josh, so this is your film. Uh, what topic you want to focus on first? Oh, that was your whole intro to it. Okay. <laughs> oh, I, did I not give a intro? Oh, you know, usually we talk for longer, but we can just kind of move into it, man. I, you know what? I kind of forgot if I, if I did my opening spiel, but I feel like we're past it. So let's just go. Let's just keep moving. Let's just keep moving on into it. Let's go. So the problem I have with picking where to start right now is that my notes are kind of all over the place in terms of what I actually want to say. And I'm not sure I have a good flow for it. So hmm. instead, I'm going to start by asking you a question. Sure. Um, what? How? How do you view what's happening in that asylum? With what context? Like, nah, it's it's too vague of a question. You're right. It's a bad question. Because, uh, all right. So let me let me let me preface it like this then. Um, Every time I've watched this movie prior to the recent watching, I have looked at it mostly as the individuals that comprise the main cast, which I don't think is a bad way of watching. Like, that's how I've watched it every other time. And I, I love this movie. Um, mm -hmm. And this time I, I watched it with these guys more so trying to view them more as a conglomerate, you know, where they're more of a microcosm of society than they are strictly individual. And that led me to a really different viewing of it than I had previously. Um, I don't know, like, where, do you have any impression of how you, how you viewed these people? Basically, I viewed them as those who were not full who suffered from mental illnesses that were not yet fully understood by greater society and who were in this quote unquote for lack of a better term asylum for their own safety whether it be from themselves or society around them granted some of which were committed there, you know, without their own will. But again, this is a safe place for them to kind of live their life, be around those with similar struggles and have the, the structure and support to survive. But that being said, it is also a period of time where the intricacies of all these illnesses are not understood to the fullest extent. And those who are tasked with essentially supporting them and caring for them don't really care for them the way they would for someone without these illnesses who they could relate to and are therefore treated similarly to how they would be on the outside because those who are tasked with caring for them 
would hold the same biases as those in the real world. Uh, I don't know how much that answers your question, but it is, it, it's, it's a tough question to answer. It, it is, it is, which is why I think I wanted to ask you because it's something I hadn't even considered until, because like, it wasn't even something I was trying to do in this viewing. Um, mm -hmm. And for one thing, I, I just want to not skip past what you said because it was a really good answer. And I just want to say yes. Um, <laughs> but I was realizing it a, a, a little bit of the way through. And I don't know if it's because of, you know, like keeping up with the news over the past, especially the past like three or four months. Um, but, you know, over the past several years has made me more attuned to looking at things in 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 a scope of society and and citizenry versus government, you know, but like I'd been, I kind of like found myself looking at it a lot in that context as I was watching it. Um, Cause like one of my very, one of my first notes is about the, the faux democracy around the world series vote. that um, mm -hmm. happens eh, relatively early on in the film. You know, um, Jack Nicholson wants to watch the world series because he always watches the world series and, he even got to watch it in jail, and uh, that's not part of the schedule, so um, Nurse Ratchet isn't letting him. Um, and she's like, all right, if you can get a majority vote, then you can do it. All nine people in the group therapy session vote to watch the World Series, and she says, well, there's actually 18 people on the ward, even though nine of them are invalids and can't vote because they don't understand fully what's happening. Um, and then she sets up arbitrary constraints, yada, yada, yada. The point being, there you go. There you go again. I said yada, yada, yada again. Um, point I mentioned being, the bisque. God damn it. Um, Oh my gosh. Oh, dude, I love this movie. I Watch it. Nurse Ratchet's such a. Don't get me wrong, that is. Absolutely what you should be taking. This is the arbitrary nature of some rules in society. You know, this, you know, it's part of our schedule. Who makes us? Schedule. Nurse. Pratchett does. As being arbitrary. What she does is arbitrary. Or I should say, not all of, a lot of a lot of what she mm -hmm. does is arbitrary because and i think that is supposed to be a commentary just on the movie enough times you fall into a rhythm in it and i hadn't challenged that viewing of it in a while um but because i think what jack nicholson is supposed to be there in a lot of ways and it gets mentioned
mentioned in the I think some of the arbitrary nature of the rules that are put in place by things can make one look more insane. If you don't fit you mantling, even though it's 75 and mantle had retired, um, He's literally in a mental institution, but it's it's less about the actuality of what he's. Doing and more about how to watch to make up, um, I, I, and I, I I think that's the real value in like that scene in particular, but for all of this. Does that make sense? Yeah, they will freak out, and and that's not to keep them calm and compliant. We need to keep the nature of, you know, the same thing day in and day out, basically brighten up their lives and in turn, you know, hopefully get them to enter a, a happier mindset, being able to look forward to these kinds of things. So they are both trying to do what is best for the people of the ward, the men of the ward, just with different paths and different ways to go about doing so. And the struggle comes from not being able to compromise between the two. Yeah, I, I, I think Ratchet represents a well-meaning fascist government. Like, she truly does think, and there is a lot of merit to a lot of her decisions, like not wanting to um, shake up the schedule too abruptly and too dramatic of a fashion does have some merit to it. You know, like, you know, 
I've been in therapy a lot. Having routine is something that they tell you. Like, it's good to build a routine. At the same time, the rigidity behind that rationale is where that gap in lies and exercising ultimate authority over it in a very clenched fist type of way is where I think in lies the problem. Because if you look strictly at Ratchet's, a lot of Ratchet's decision-making, and I want to get to at least one decision I, I, I question a lot. Well, there's a couple. Um, but there is behind it, like you said, something that is truly meant to be of the benefit of the people. But it's, it's that, that iron-fisted approach that, you know, my way or the highway to a, to a very authoritarian degree that I think in lies a lot of the problem. Because when you do that and are that person and you have that rigidity to yourself and your viewpoints and your decision-making, it makes you incapable of viewing the individual, which I think is a big problem if you're going to be, say, the head nurse at an, a, a psych ward where you're dealing with very individual problems and behaviors. Mm-hmm. And that is sharply contrasted to, again, what you said with Jack Nicholson being, I'll say the advocate for some level of self-determination. Um, and definitely the guy with, I guess, the most in-the-world experience trying to tell these people, and it's basically a direct quote here, that you're no more crazy than anybody else walking the streets. Um, and I, that, I think, is the main problem with, with Ratchet, is that she doesn't care about what they want. She cares about what in her mind is right. And while there certainly is a lot of merit to coming up with what is right on paper, that doesn't necessarily mean it's good for the individual. Mm -hmm. You know? Right. Right. And that's what I meant by like the societal view of it, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. No, I completely understand that. Because I was, I was also thinking while I was watching this that it, this is kind of like, because um, you know this is seventy five. We're post counterculture here, um, and Jack Nicholson's character, R. P. McMurphy, is was I should say certainly a counterculture dude in the sixties. You know, R. P. Yes. McMurphy. I think they said is like thirty eight in the movie, which means that in sixty four he would have been like twenty seven. You know. That that was a guy dropping dropping LSD and like you know trying to figure out how to get what uh, tickets to to Woodstock you know like mm-hmm. well if they even bother checking tickets I don't know <laughs> uh, he 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 was he was wrestling in mud for sure um, <laughs> I feel like he could just be Creed Brad just as a whole Creed Bratton. Creed Bratton. from the Office oh yeah I'm not much of an Office guy. Interesting. Um, yeah, 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 I know. Um, but uh, it seemed like this is this is the ultimate confrontation between counterculture rebellion and the institution, because unlike counterculture in it and its practice in the '60s, you couldn't just say "fuck you." I have free speech. I'm going to tell you to fuck you, and then I'm going to leave. And maybe you'll throw me in the can for a night. Maybe you'll even trump up a charge. But at some point, I can leave. He doesn't have that power here. 
she does. And that is in direct contrast to how he'd been living his life. And so mm-hmm. it really is challenging his whole... And not that he changes, because I don't think he changes at all throughout the course of the film, outside of the you know lobotomy. Um, but that is the first time he really has to confront with the fact that he doesn't have a say in really what happens to him. It is entirely in the authorities' hands to decide. And that's a that's a really impactful scene to me when he first realizes that this isn't a 68 day a, a a few week cruise you know of him finding a loophole in the system and getting out of having to spend time in jail he thinks you know he can pretend to be crazy and get a an easy sentencing with pool time and you know playing cards with you know a bunch of guys no shackles and when he realizes that no like you are being committed and this isn't just for your sentence this is for as long as it takes until you prove yourself to be fit to reenter society that's a huge scene and again obviously a, a turning point in the film itself um but uh, a, a huge point of seeing how mcmurphy changes himself and his actions in order to try and work the system again. Yeah. With um you mean the um what's his fucking name? Cheswick, the 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 cigarette scene. I don't want uh, your cigarettes. I don't want your cigarettes. Yeah. I want my cigarettes. Yep. Yeah. That's Cheswick um, all right. Gotta love Cheswick. I did an accent there that is nothing to do with anything we're discussing and oof well and i i think that scene is there to show um the rolling the rolling nature of change you know and it gets brought up i'm not sure directly after that or before that or where chronologically it happens but the scene where one of the therapists acts asks um uh jack nicholson about you know do you know what the phrase a rolling stone gathers no moss means mm-hmm. um and that was in reference to him, but I think that is also in reference to the wheels that he had put in motion at at the um, at the institution. Because now a lot of people are starting to question their I don't want to say government because it's not a government, but their the conditions of their that in which under which they're living. You know, Cheswick is starting to wonder, like, why can't I have my shit? Why are you holding on to my shit? And sure, Ratchet has a reason, and, you know, that reason is to be accepted or rejected upon however you want to view that rationale, but the fact that the question took place is what matters, you know, Um, and that was a direct result of um, R.P. McMurphy being there, you know, and that he can't necessarily rein that in. He kept trying to get Cheswick to calm down um, because he wanted to be on good behavior so he could get out of there, but he couldn't control it, you know? Same thing God, with, there's uh, so many. There's so many amazing layers to this film. Yeah, yeah, there really are. Um, like this is this is a very easy movie for us to spend a very significant amount of time on. Right, which is why I'm so glad we we ended up watching it because when you pair it with something equally amazing like Letters from Iwo Jima, where 
it is relatively straightforward in its message and there is not a whole lot of complexity to the storyline it's more or less just the you know narrative nature of it and and the impactful story itself not the um not the discussion itself so overall fantastic but very different way right all right i i want to ask you about the main character the guy this movie is about chief chief yeah chief undeniably the main character there or at least what this what this movie is about um how do you take how hmm well, i'm trying to think of the best way of putting this question right what do you think is chief's arc in the film um i think there's definitely something to be said about the the treatment of native americans as a whole i think that was still something that was meant to be discussed um and uh a point of impact for his character and and his arc but i think specifically chief is the god it's hard to say um because I view Chief in a similar way you would view McMurphy, someone who is both a black sheep, but also someone who is just trying to survive on their own terms. And Chief is basically allowing himself to be... Uh, I guess you would say he's one of the ones committed. Um but he's doing so willingly to an extent in order to avoid the extra societal impacts that or uh, what's the term for it basically trying to avoid the the same struggles that destroy he saw destroy his father and many of those that would be around him uh you know in his in his little segment of society um that sounded demeaning but it wasn't intended to be it's it's really tough to to really put it into the right words especially not after seeing this seeing this for the first time in so many years only for the second time and not being able to break this down to the same extent you have so i feel like that was a a non-answer that was just a lot of words talking around inability to answer. Uh, hey, buddy, I'm still here for it either way. Yeah. Um, the way the way I view Chief is for for whatever reason because it's not discussed and it doesn't I guess really matter. Um, in in terms of what the movies is going is is doing, uh, Chief lacks the ability to feel his own self-determination. He has mm. willingly or unwillingly, again, not fully discussed, but um, given up his, his, his own agency. You know, he's not making his own decisions based on what he does with his day, or scheduling where he is, what he's doing. You know, like that's all decided for you pretty much when you are living in the institution. Um, 
he is he is removing himself from society and choosing not to participate in it. Or again, whether how he got there and whether he's committed or there voluntarily isn't fully brought up. But regardless, he is removed from society and not participating in it. And that I think is also shown with in a smaller scale um, the fact that he pretends to be deaf and dumb, like. That is not only him not participating in society to the greater extent by, you know, going to the store, having friends, whatever. He's not even participating in the small scale society that they have in the in the compound by just pretending he can't hear anybody and that he can't talk like he doesn't want to be involved in anything. And again, what the what the mental reason is for that, I don't know. And I don't want to, you know make guesses because that just seems rude and like it's not going to get you anywhere um but i i really think his big change is that jack nicholson shows him throughout the film that he is a viable member of society and he can have his own agency and he can find meaning in his own life you know jack nicholson at several points in the film could have just walked away from this compound, and he might have gotten caught again, but then he'd have gone to jail. He wouldn't have gone back to the institution in all likelihood. You know? He could have he could have left during the Christmas party. He could he could have left during the before the fishing trip. And he didn't. He wanted to come back and show these people that their lives had some meaning and that they could survive on their own outside of this environment. And Chief was the one that really did that. You know? He he took that to heart. Um he he is symbolic not only of his own story with finding his his own um, agency and his own self-determination and feeling some level of empowerment. He's also symbolic of the change of society that took place within the, the, the walls of the asylum. Um, and he fulfills some of the foreshadowing that we got earlier with like the showerhead scene, you know? And there's also the Native American aspect of it um, that we can uh, talk a little bit about in, in a moment. But it's it's really one of the most fulfilling endings because whether you realize it or not, and I'm sure there's even parts to this arc that I'm missing just because this movie has so much going on in it. Um, but it's such a satisfying ending when he breaks the shackles of this confinement and then flees off into into nature. That because all of these things really come to a head and are so seen in that moment, you know? Mm-hmm. God, it is a great ending. And as much as you feel for Mick Murphy and, and you know, the the fate that he suffers, you understand that it's symbolically freeing for those that he ended up caring about. Yeah. Yeah, he, he is the sacrificial lamb, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's sad, but that guy's needed. Um, and it, to, to go to the showerhead a little bit, the one that um, McMurphy tries to rip out of the wall and the chief actually does, or out mm-hmm. of the floor, I should say. Um, it's really sad this the it's a really sad scene seeing McMurphy not be able to put, put, pick it up, having 
knowing how the movie ends. Because, you know, you obviously get that that's some level of foreshadowing. You don't, you don't, you don't know what it's foreshadowing yet, but you get that that's some level of foreshadowing um, when it happens, because why else would it be there, you know? Um, especially with Jack Nicholson's line of, like, you know, I didn't do it, at least I tried, or some shit like that. Um, because, I mean, when, when you get to the end, you realize that scene's there because Jack Nicholson's trying to make change, and he's trying to not be constrained by the the literal physical limitations of the building. He can't rip it out of the floor the same way he can't really get himself out of the walls of the building. Um, mm. And it ultimately kills him. Whereas, you see at the end, you get that part of that gratification because it fulfills the foreshadowing which he rips it up out of the, out of the ground. But it also shows that that is, that is him literally affecting change, you know, and literally damaging the surface that is being, that is, that is holding him inside, you know, part of his, part of these, this wall and floor situation that he is, he's been un, incapable of escaping for more mental reasons than physical reasons, but is, is putting a, a, a physical touch on. Um, yeah. Hey Josh, do you like this movie? I fucking love this movie. <laughs> I also had a thought while watching it. I wanna, I wanna ask you about, or I wanna talk about a little. Um, the idea of this movie stopping the night of the Christmas party with the, you know, like Jack Nicholson dipping out and whatnot, because this movie is very different pre-Christmas party versus post-Christmas party. Hmm. The tone really shifts. And because nothing really bad happens pre-Christmas party. You know, yeah, like Jack Nicholson's getting in trouble and some of the guys are getting in trouble and yada, yada, yada. But it's all pretty good natured. Afterwards is really where things get fucked up. You know, afterwards is when, you know, they start with the electroshock therapy and um, the lobotomy and Billy killing himself and all that stuff happens afterwards. Beforehand, it's a lot of it's like good nature, you know, Pretending the World Series is on, gambling in the bathroom, yada yada yada. Again with the yada yada yadas. Um, and I, I, I kind of, I took it this viewing to be like a couple different things. One, seeing the end almost like an epilogue to the beginning, where a different movie would have ended with the Christmas party, you know. Uh, a less real movie would have ended with the Christmas party. So that epilogue being an epilogue, but also a main feature of the story, really bringing the realism to it, um, as, as well as being um, the consequences of counterculturalism coming to fruition. You know? Because mm -hmm. before all, that's all the rebellion. And again, you know, if this was a different movie, it might have ended with that, and you only saw all the cool shit of the rebellion. Um, and then here is your actions coming back in the form of consequences. Did, did I don't know? Did did you see anything with that in there? I didn't. You know, it it it's still new enough to me where it it's hard to see through you know, those veils and see that deeper story within a story type, you know, stuff. Um, 
but man, I couldn't imagine this film. And closure and the growth that we see after that and how things change because of those I don't think this would be anywhere near the film that it is now you know it is today I think I think if it ended at Christmas party this would be a good movie, and one you'd probably like still watch because Jack Nichols. It might be um, more of a dog day afternoon, less of a godfather. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That was a thought. We're just here to talk thoughts, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I I also would like to, I guess, close on the point uh, about the Native Americans. Symbolism of having thoughts on it. I mean, I definitely think there is commentary built in on the oppression and suppress these structures of oppression. Um, but I don't think you could watch this even initially view. So like, I don't, I don't know how exactly the reservation is, is, is reservations are viewed. And that's part of what I mean by like lacking a context, but I, Knowing nothing and making assumptions that might be rude anyway, and I'm sorry, but I, I want to make sure we devote some time to talking about this topic because I think it is important for a lot of reasons and I want to at least try. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if Chief is there to say something along the lines of you belong wherever you want to belong, not just where we tell you to belong, you know? Like, you can be on the reservation if that's what you want and that's what's comforting to you. Again, we don't know why Chief is in the institution, whether he is committed there, a.k.a. he is told to be there, or whether he signed himself in there, a.k.a. chose to be there. Um, but either way, he is there, and he feels as though he needs to be there for whatever reason. And because he, he, there is some level of lack of self-determination and agency, as we had said, and he breaks out of that and decides that he wants to be a part of society to a more full extent. And I'm, I don't, again, I, neither of us know what the author of the book was, was thinking, um, nor much about where Native American society was at this time or what it might be trying to say about that because it's a pretty under-discussed topic in every aspect of life and, and cinema is, is no exception to it. Um, but I can't help but th- I mean, you're right. Like, there's got to be something, otherwise, that choice wouldn't be there. And I think the thing that would make the most direct parallel to conversation would be reservations. Right. But I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't have all the facts. And I don't think any of us, you know, if we sit here and have this discussion, will. It's just. Uh... 
I don't even know how to comment on it, it further. It's nice to see, even though this is 75 and I can't cannot think of a more recent example, it's nice to see a Native American featured heavily in a film that definitely has some level of undertone to it about the Native American history in the United States that isn't a literal, like, Cowboys and Indian style movie where they're just teaching the white man how to grow corn. Like, I like the fact that this is a guy that has, like, actual, like, life problems that aren't tied into his Native Americanism, but is also making points, um, societal points about Native Americanism, even if I don't fully get them, and that's okay. You know, like, I like that they're at least there, and I wish there was a greater level of representation to those um, topics and issues. Yeah, um, it would have been cool to see. Um, what am I trying to say? Um, additional discussion on this after the fact, or at least something done afterwards that would touch on this further. But again, that's that's a weird territory of. I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, it's also tough because, you know, it's still 1975. This character's name is Chief. And when uh, Jack Nicholson meets him, he starts doing the, the like, kind of thing. I don't know what that's called. It's not like ululating. That's Middle Eastern. Um, but whatever that sound is, just, like, right to his face and dan- dancing around like, like, like a Native American person. Um, like, this movie still is not without its, its dashes of racism. But mm-hmm. it is nice to at least get some level of of, uh, of discussion on some of these topics. But yeah, uh, all right. Ain't nothing better than good old classic, you know, seventies America racism. Yeah, where the white man can tell the the brown man ha- that he should give him permission to go be a part of society. Um, there's definitely, you know, some problematic things here with it. But we're gonna we're gonna just. Gently gloss over them for now. Uh, do you have any final discussion points on One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest, or shall we move to final ratings and review? Uh, I'm okay moving to final ratings and review. All right. Well, um, this is my pick, so I will start. Uh, I love this movie. That is not a secret. We just jerked it off for a good 30 minutes, so you shouldn't be surprised. Um, I think over the course of the discussion, you heard lots of reasons why if you haven't watched this movie in a while it's worth the rewatch why if you if you've never watched this movie why it's worth a watch um and why i think it's there's still a lot of value in it um just phenomenal acting performances a great story all the things you'd possibly want um it's a five out of five this is, this is easy locked completely agree you said it good summary five out of five all right then uh shall we move into next week's picks sure all right, what do you, what do you got? got? Nope. All right. I'll go first. Uh, I'll go with a uh, more recent film that I haven't seen, but I'm very excited to watch because I've heard such great things. Uh, Molly's Game. Oh, I'm not sure I've seen this either. Uh, Idris Elba, uh, Jessica Chastain. Eh, Corin, you finally did it. Picked a movie that you aren't uh, familiar with? Yeah, I haven't seen it. I'm so happy. You should be thrilled. Um, <laughs> all right. I'm going to go with a rewatch because my girlfriend wants to watch it and we will do what she wants. Um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh, yes. 
one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, I I, I think this will be fun. I, yeah, it's, it's such a such a classic movie. I was like literally just talking about this to someone yesterday. Perfect. There you go. All right. So we got we got 2017's Molly's Game and 1986's uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Those are the picks for next week. Uh, if you want to hit us up to tell us about um, either of the movies we've talked about, either of the movies we're going to talk about, if you're like request a movie for us to talk about or whatever, uh, you can hit us up via Twitter at Big Screen Juice, and you can um, email us at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. Um, that's it for this week. And uh, until next Tuesday, y'all have a good one. Bye.